Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 56, Dr. Spaceman. I'm Gary Jordan, and I'll be your host today. So we bring in the experts here, NASA astronauts, NASA doctors, and sometimes astronaut doctors. And that's what we're bringing on today, an astronaut and a medical doctor. I need to go back to school. Okay, so today we're talking with Dr. Mike Barrett, who started his career at NASA as a physician and a flight surgeon. He flew to the International Space Station twice, once on a long-duration mission in 2009 and again in 2011 on Space Shuttle Discovery. He also served as the manager of the Human Research Program that looks at uh, the most prominent health and performance risks associated with human spaceflight and to figure out what to do about it and make astronauts safe and healthy as possible. So today, I talked with Dr. Barrett about the five hazards of human spaceflight. We work with the Human Research Program to identify these hazards. We're looking at radiation, isolation and confinement, distance from Earth, altered gravity, and hostile and closed environments. We give a broad overview of each of them from a medical doctor slash astronaut who has actually flown in space. So with no further delay, let's go light speed and jump right ahead to our talk with Dr. Mike Barrett. Enjoy. T-minus five seconds and counting. Mark. Launch commit light shirt for the red. There she goes. Houston, we have a podcast. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today to talk about uh, your story and then also these hazards. My pleasure. All right. So I kind of want to start with just gr- growing up. I know you grew up in Washington State. Yeah. So I grew up in a kind of a farming community in southwestern <laughs> Washington. It was impossibly beautiful mountains, forests, not that far from the ocean and on the Columbia River. And uh, it was just a, a really good upbringing for so many reasons. But uh, growing up on a farm, uh, everything broke and you had to fix it. And you were always doing chores and getting up early in the morning. And part of life that I really didn't appreciate until I left it and uh, found others who couldn't swing a hammer or or turn a screwdriver and uh, realized what a a great upbringing that was. Uh, But fortunately for a small school, we had some very inspiring teachers, those that were very science and socially minded. And uh, these guys were just incredibly formative in my choice of careers and I guess my my lifelong really love of learning. It was definitely the schooling then that really introduced you to a passion in kind of a STEM field then. Yeah, I think so. It was an interesting time because there were possibilities to do things with your hands that that our teachers kind of inspired us to do. So I was building telescopes and I was building little habitats for mice to live underwater in the lake that was next to us, which was probably a bad idea for a lot of reasons, <laughs> uh, and also lofting them up in kites. And so I think that um, that inspiration just causes you to do things that you can do, and uh, a lot of us did that, and it was just, uh, you know, again, very formative. So how much of it was you playing with sort of uh, any equipment and, and doing kind of these, were, were you tearing things apart and bringing them back together and, and <laughs> that kind of like that classic kind of engineering thing to do? Yeah, it wasn't so much that I was tearing things apart to see how they worked as really trying to build new things to follow an interest. Interesting. Okay. So what what's interesting about that is um, you actually went into zoology when you went to, uh, when you went to college, right? That was interesting. Why zoology? Well, so I think uh, to to go up front a little bit, one of the things that characterizes us here in the astronaut office and at Johnson Space Center in general is that we have a lot of broad interests and we followed a lot of different paths. 
growing up. And the space program puts that all together. So at various times of my life, I wanted only to be an astronomer, and I was building telescopes, and including grinding mirrors, which uh, I'll never do again, but it was a great experience <laughs> to do. And uh, marine biology was, was my passion for several years, and so I came out of high school with that as a career goal. And the uh, University of Washington at the time, they didn't actually have a marine biology track per se, but you could do zoology with a marine emphasis. And hmm. so that's what I did. Okay. Were you still playing around with telescopes then? Absolutely. <laughs> there was a lot more light pollution in Seattle than on the farm in southwest Washington. But sure, I mean, I kept all these other passions alive and and uh, just looked for a, a way to combine them, I guess. Yeah. Now, what's interesting after that is, uh, you know, you're, you're focusing, you're finding a way to get into this marine biology field, but it was, it was later that you decided maybe to take a turn towards the medical route. Right. What kind of influenced that? Wow. Well, uh, the, the truth of the story is that I met this cute girl in college who was going to <laughs> medical school, and she had that as her focus since she was in third grade. And uh, so I decided if I, if I wanted her, I'm going to have to follow her to medical school. I tell you, that's, that's at least half the story. <laughs> um, but as I was going through biology classes and just learning about the human body, anatomy, and physiology, and thinking about that in light of some of my other passions, which were astronomy and space and aviation. I had been through ground school by that time. And marine biology, I started kind of nurturing this interest in what the human is like in, in all of these different environments. And so it seemed to me that uh, medicine might be a place to combine a lot of my interests and uh, basically followed uh, my wife to medical school. By the way, we just celebrated number 37 here recently. So wow, congratulations. It's been a long time. <laughs> it's been a lot of fun. <laughs> All right, so you, found, you followed the cute girl and then, and then locked her down. <laughs> yep, absolutely. <laughs> Very good. All right, so, so you're, you're, you're changing your path a little bit, and then eventually it, it sounds like you're finding different pieces of influence that are kind of taking a left turn on your career path. You started with this marine biology. Now you're going into medicine. When did you start seeing aerospace medicine? It sounds like you were a pilot, too. So maybe that was part of the influence, but aerospace medicine as well, a Well, to be sure, I've been through ground school, uh, oh, but ground I school, couldn't afford okay. flying lessons at oh, the time. Oh, I see. But I think uh, life gives us these little seminal events and coincidences and whatnot. And literally one day while um, uh, my soon-to-be wife and I were studying for the medical college admission test, we were in the library at the University of Washington at the Medical Sciences Library, and I got up to wander around for a study break, and I discovered this journal, which was called Aviation, Space, and Environmental Medicine. And it was just sitting in, in the uh, journal stacks. I had never heard of the journal. I had never heard of aerospace medicine. Uh, it was just very intriguing to me. So I, hmm. I grabbed one of these, and I uh, took it back to my little study carol, and I read it cover to cover, and I had just never seen anything like this that combined all of these things, atmospheric science, hyperbaric, hypobaric, diving medicine, altitude medicine, uh, all the extremes were, were all in one place. And I probably got about as excited about any medical discovery right then and there as, as I ever have. Wow. So uh, interestingly, I just started to talk to people and uh, obviously there's no internet then. So you're finding names and numbers in the phone book and calling folks and and uh, speaking with those who are who are willing to talk to you, which most of them were, and that's probably the event that started nurturing that that interest in my senior year of of uh, college. 
What was it about the ex- you said you said they were extreme and combining right. all of these extreme elements? What was that? What was the extreme part that was extre- intriguing? Well, you're you're basically looking at the medicine of human performance in places we are not optimally designed to be. So high altitude uh, climbers or uh, warfighters at high altitude divers. How deep can you go? How do we adapt to different atmospheres? Uh, radiation. All these things that induce environmental stresses on people were part and parcel to environments that we've chosen to operate in all of these places that I mentioned. Uh, So the idea of a discipline of a medical science that takes a very uh, methodical approach to to helping people do this, I, I just thought was was amazing. It was about as cutting edge as you could get. Absolutely, it's it's, it's entirely about pushing the boundaries of what the yep. human body can. You're you're pushing it in all these different. You're like like the, the word used is extreme extreme right. directions. How much you know can can it take this amount of pressure? How high can you go? You know what what are all these environments that you can really test the human body in? Right, absolutely. Um, so, at what point did you find that NASA was a possibility? Well, I think for a lot of us growing up where I did, when I did, NASA was this amazing entity that was soundly out of reach for most of us. It's what the, <laughs> the brightest and the best and, the, and all the cutting edge people did. Uh, but as I got a little bit uh, closer into it, as I got more research done and talked to more and more people, I realized that really the most fascinating aspect of all the environmental medicine out there was, was space. It was the, the microgravity aspect, potentially hypergravity when you're launching and landing the radiation. And uh, that's just kind of what I wanted to do as I went through medical school. And um, I think uh, you have to choose a medical specialty at the end of four years of medical school. And oh, yeah. I really still didn't know enough about aerospace medicine, but what I could tell of the literature was that if I knew pathophysiology well, it would prepare me the best if I wanted a career in aerospace medicine. So I made a deliberate choice to go into internal medicine at Northwestern in Chicago, uh, just to learn that, to really learn pathophysiology, learn how the human adapts to certain illnesses and how do we keep people healthy, which is a big focus of internal medicine. And it was during that time that I established some closer ties with the aerospace medicine residency, in particular in Ohio. and. Um, did finish uh, my pilot's license and hey, was moonlighting awesome. to pay for flying li- lessons, actually. Uh, and just uh, gradually over the years grew closer and closer to it. Was um, was this whole pilot thing that you were kind of exploring, was it to, as you were kind of researching and learning about the pushing the human boundaries, was it wanting to really kind of see it for yourself maybe a little bit? You know, it was partly that. I still kind of thought that it was way above me. But oh. being able to to do the medicine aspect of it. I thought I could do, I, and I thought it would be really, really interesting to me. Yeah. Uh, but again, it, this was a relationship formed over years of talking to people, and the closer I got, the more I realized that perhaps I, I could <laughs> get a toehold in here. And I absolutely loved flying, and I, I think everybody I know that uh, is a pilot is just passionate about being in the air and uh, controlling a machine and and knowing how we perform up there. So this was a natural progression. Yeah, it's always just kind of described as like a naturally kind of freeing feeling. You oh, kind absolutely. of feel above everything, really truly free. So you so you have your residency in internal medicine, now you're you're exploring aerospace medicine, and that's where, it, I think it was immediately after your aerospace residency, right, you kind of transitioned over to NASA through, it sounds like talking to these people. Yeah, that's correct. So what were you first doing at NASA? So when I first came down here, I was employed by a contractor, which was Krug Life Sciences at the mm-hmm. time, which is now Wiley, KBR Wiley, to be precise. 
but that was at a time when we were still working towards the Space Station Freedom Project, which was a, a Ronald Reagan era Cold War massive uh, international project to be done in space. And already by that time, geopolitical influences were having a big effect on the space program and a lot of our careers. Hmm. So the Cold War was pretty much coming to a close when I first came here in 1991. And Space Station Freedom was really looked at for its potential contribution, both to science and geopolitical stability. The day I arrived here, which I believe was in May of 1991, the uh, House had just passed by one vote to continue Space Station Freedom in a very limited fashion. And you could tell that uh, the support for it was was waning, no question about it. And I came down here as a project physician working on the hyperbaric airlock for Space Station Freedom. And over the course of that year, uh, the, the Space Station Freedom Project pretty much folded. And uh -huh. we anticipated that. We knew that was going to happen. Uh, but there was a lot of misdirection and people were really not sure what was going on. That was a very good year for me, though, in that uh, I realized that whatever training I had had, which was 10 years beyond college, by the way, um, was not really suitable to start being useful immediately. There's so much specific knowledge you need down here. It was it was easily a year before I felt that I was useful, that I kind of passed a break-even point and was contributing more than I was learning. So in a way, that, that formative year helped me direct myself and helped, uh, as at a time that NASA was directing itself, helped us all kind of get on the same page. And uh, so I became a, a NASA flight surgeon in 1992, and at that time we were just starting the U.S.-Russian program. And I had always been intrigued by the Russian space program ever since the Apollo-Soyuz uh, mission that was done during the Cold War and yeah. showed what was possible as, as cooperation. And so when people came and said, who would like to go to Russia or start working with Russia in, in spaceflight, uh, boy, not too many people raised their hands. <laughs> but myself and, uh, and another younger flight surgeon at the time were just enthralled by the prospect. And, and we started working really in 1992, 1993 with the joint U.S.-Russian program. And that was probably the biggest influence on the remainder of my career here. Yeah, so it was... It was kind of your first steps into, um, I, or was it actually your first steps into international collaboration and really traveling? And, Certainly for me. Yeah. yeah. So how how was that? That introduction into that world? I mean, it was it was amazing for me. It was um, it was very intriguing to meet our first Russian specialist. That was in 1992, and I can tell you, uh, Igor Goncharov, uh, who I met in 1992. Uh, I started a friendship with, and I will just tell you that it, it, it went a long time, and he was at my landing in 2009 <laughs> as a recovering medical uh, officer. It was just an amazing uh, relationship that we, we had formed. And in 1993, I made my first trip to Russia mm -hmm. and uh, was one of the first Americans to be at a Soyuz landing, actually, at that time. Wow. Now, the irony is uh, we had already started thinking about using the Soyuz as a rescue vehicle from Space Station Freedom. And we had originally said, no, that doesn't meet our requirements. And the answer was, well, go anyway and see what it's like. And we've since then just formed a tremendous amount of respect for that vehicle. Right. Uh, but to be there and to see it and to be in Star City and at a time when it still wasn't on the maps, it was still <laughs> kind of the secret city that everybody knew about uh, in this post-Cold War era was just an amazing, enthralling thing. Yeah. You're part of something much bigger. You're part of something kind of worldly, I guess. Yeah, we didn't think about that at the time because there were so many things against us. We, we oh. thought that uh, our program would crash and burn, but we kept working at it pretty hard. <laughs> uh, and it, it just formed into something big. So yeah. it was really quite quite wonderful. So through this, uh, you're, you're, you're <clears throat> checking out the international relations. You're, um, you're 
really checking out all of these vehicles and understanding spaceflight uh, from from the uh, surgeon, from the flight surgeon perspective. Um, now, at what point do you start working with the crew? Because I know there's uh, there's a point here where you start being a crew surgeon as well. Right. So early on in uh, 1992, we started working with the first Russian cosmonaut. That was Sergei Krikalev, by the hmm. way to fly on a shuttle mission. And so since I was already forming ties with the Russian program, I became deputy crew surgeon for that mission, which I think it was STS-60, so we'll find out. Okay. Um, ironically, uh, commanded by Charlie Bolden, and uh, that's how I got to know Charlie Bolden pretty well. And uh, we knew that that was just the first part of our exchange program, that we were flying Russian cosmonauts on shuttle. We were also going to be flying a U.S. astronaut on the Russian Mir station. That was Norm Thagard as the first person. And so uh, my first uh, crew surgeon assignment as deputy on that mission was both an, um, an awakening really to what it's like to care and care for and feed a crew uh, and to see them end to end. You're the last to see them before launch and pretty much the first to see them after landing and you're speaking to them every day. I mean, it's, it's really quite exciting and it's an amazing part of a flight surgeon's life. At the same time, a healthy sprinkling of the international aspect of what we were doing, the U.S.-Russian. So for me, those two experiences developed, started and developed together. Hmm. And uh, I, I can't think of taking care of crews that aren't international because of that. And, and really, that's been quite a wonderful aspect of what we did. And so after that mission, we started gearing up more towards flying Norm Thaggard on the Mir station, and he launched in 1995. So between those two points, I spent a huge amount of time in Russia, like I think over a year, oh. uh, getting ready for it, doing rotations over there, doing medical support for training and uh, field exercises, survival, and learned to get certified as a flight controller in the Russian uh, flight control center. Wow, really expanding your skills kind of all over the place. You know, yep. we're starting, I'm thinking back to where we started with your interest in marine biology, and now you're going through all these different medicine operations. Yep. Uh, you're looking at the engineer, the vehicle itself. You're kind of all over the place. It's yep. quite fascinating to be, to have such a broad perspective of things. Yeah, well, we were young and crazy. There, were, there was a small <laughs> uh, team of us, actually, that included uh, my, my partner, David Ward, who's also a young flight surgeon interested in Russia. Peggy Whitson, who was oh, yeah. uh, kind of in charge of the science aspect of our joint U.S.-Russian program, and I was more the med ops lead. And uh, John McBride, who's a, a legend around here, just a, a logistics person well-known to the international community. And we had this small team that just figured that uh, everything would work out. We just kept uh, busting chops to make it all happen, and lo and behold, it did. All right. I, was it this your introduction to this kind of broader world and, and understanding this that you really realized that astronaut was actually on the table? Actually, it was it was probably even later than that. Really? We, um, we flew the first mission, and it, it went very well, not, not without a hitch, but it went very well, of a U.S. astronaut on the Mir station. And the more I worked with Russia, the more I worked with long duration, the more I realized that in the big picture of space flight, of exploration, of human expansion, if you will, uh, long duration flight is how we're gonna get somewhere. And in some ways, it was much more intriguing to me than the short duration shuttle flights that we were doing. Now, these were fantastic, make no mistake. These were uh, short and dense and science packed and, and very high profile. And it looked like people were having a lot of fun. But the kind of the brute force reality of how the human adapts to weightlessness over months, hmm. over long periods of time, commensurate with a deep space cruise phase to Mars, for instance, that's what really started to intrigue me. So it was a combination of that and my role as uh, an educator, if you will, teaching the, the astronauts what their body is going to do in space. 
So I, in some ways, I kind of felt a little bit like a dork saying, you know, this is this is what's going to happen to your body in space. But but I've never been there, so trust me. <laughs> um, this is just what we know and best, best available information and, and best stories we get from you guys. So I realized that really to, to fulfill my ultimate um, dream of understanding space medicine, I would really have to go there myself. Mm-hmm. So I put my hat in the ring first for the uh, 1998 selection. And I was massively busy at the time and really just put that in very quickly and I did interview at that time I did not uh, get in um, but I wasn't dissuaded and and just kept it in there I still didn't have any inkling that I would get accepted that still seemed quite a bit out of reach to me but uh, in the year 2000 well lo and behold I I got picked wow all right so that must have been quite a achievement for you to 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 put it in a second time and and finally get that call. <clears throat> yeah, well, there are certainly people who got on their first time and people who got yeah. uh, in after six times. And so I, I felt uh, incredibly lucky, no question about it. So going through the training, and we've and we've talked about uh, astronaut training a lot on this podcast, but, sure. um, you know, a lot from you have a different perspective being a flight surgeon first and understanding the how the human body reacts and what, what you're really training for, especially from a from – a, uh, human research sort of perspective. Um, what were what was your perspective as a flight surgeon turned astronaut as you were going through the training? Kind of maybe you had a different perspective than maybe other astronauts in your same class did. Well, sure. Everybody comes with uh, sets of perspectives. Sure. No question, based on their experience and their impressions. Uh, I will tell you that I missed my old job tremendously. Oh, really? For the first few years. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. It was exciting to be in the astronaut office. And I had an amazing class, the the 17-member class of 2000. Best class ever in fact um, but wow I was gearing up to uh, get the medical system going for the ISS which launched the first crew that same year and so after years and years of, of work and anticipation and um, putting this all together knowing the crews working with them in Russia the US and the Russian crews and other international folks all of a sudden right on the cusp of launch I'm yanked away in, into the astronaut office so that that was not easy I will be right. very upfront about that um, but, uh, yes, indeed, I had a different perspective because I knew a little bit more about how the human performs. And I knew Russia, and I knew Russian, and there were a lot of aspects of the program that were very familiar to me. Mm-hmm. However, everybody comes with their own skill sets and deficits, and I'm not an engineer. So uh. a lot of what you're learning is systems engineering in Astro 101. So we had to learn shuttle systems and, and station systems. And uh, there were certainly places where I was in a, at an advantage. Uh, those were not them. And so uh, certain things I could skip out of class and other things I had to work twice as hard as my classmates. Yeah. Now, uh, that's actually an interesting perspective because a lot of a lot of astronauts you talk to now, I mean, Russian is one of the <clears throat> hardest things to learn just because, you know, they've, they've lived in the engineering world for a, a long time and getting used to that is maybe a little bit easier than it is for you. But you've actually had the Russian training. And right. so extra Russian training was, it was just, you know, yeah, I guess it was a little bit easier of a transition than learning something out of, I guess, your field. Yeah, to a point, I, I think medical people are used to memorizing big reams of information quickly oh, yeah. and you to communicating and I was kind of a language dweeb anyway so I thought yeah I got this great advantage I speak Russian 
well, that was an advantage for about 400 milliseconds when we uh, started learning all the other stuff, the engineering and whatnot. And oh, then yeah. Obviously, I did not have the advantage. <laughs> so we balanced each other out, I think, yeah. quite well. Now, you're going through the training, and then you finally um, launch to the International Space Station. Your first mission is on a Soyuz, and it's a long-duration mission. It's one of the expeditions you were talking about right. where you're, you're up on the station for a long time. Now, being a flight surgeon turned astronaut, what was that experience like for you? Well, that was in 2009. Uh, I'll preface that by saying I had actually finished and released the first edition of a textbook on space medicine the oh. year before I launched in 2008. So this is Principles of Clinical Medicine for Spaceflight. It's not a New York Times bestseller. I'm sure you've never heard of it. Um, <laughs> but it did it the best we could at the time to put a standard of care together for space medicine. And I had some very talented authors who um, are, you know, cutting edge in, in the research and the practice of, of their time. And so I launched with a lot of anticipation, thinking, did I get this all right? Ah. <laughs> What's it really going to be like when I get up there? What's the, the personal experience going to be like? Yeah. And uh, maybe six and a half months later into flight, I could say I got about 80% right, about 85% right. Huh. Uh, and knowing that there's a big chasm between the book learning, which you may see realized and the personal experience, which is often quite a bit more visceral and, and personal than you can describe in the book. I see. Uh, so I was going up there with a naturalist's eye, trying to look at myself and look at others to see what adaptation was really like. Hmm. And so I think partly there were days where I thought, yeah, we got it this right and pats on our backs and, and, and we're, we're going to make this. And then there were other days where, boy, we sure didn't see that coming. Uh, we had no idea. Yeah. Now that twenty percent—that's a—that's a decent chunk. Now living it, and and you, you say, there's all, there's all these things that you can anticipate and research and and find out. But once you live it, it kind of surprises you. What were some of the things that really kind of? What was that twenty percent? Twenty percent that really surprised you? Well, one thing right off was how well we adapt to be three-dimensional creatures. We. Hmm have known that we don't understand how the, the balance system, neurovestibular organs and other parts of your body that determine your sense of position, your sense of motion control, mass handling. We knew that we didn't really understand the mechanisms of that adaptation and that we thought that to be a particular hazard that people could potentially get disoriented and uh, cause erroneous commands because we're not aware of our positional sense when we're either docking a vehicle or, or manning a robotic arm. Right. In reality, over a period of days to weeks, uh, we adapt incredibly well to be three-dimensional. Uh, we don't know how. In fact, you could almost say we don't know why we can do this. <laughs> but um, after a period of uh, a few weeks, and I think it takes about six weeks for a first-time flyer, uh, we enter this stage of what my friend Shannon Lucid coined deep adaptation whereby you go into a module that's clocked differently and you can immediately change your reference frame or you find people that just move upside down in a in a module and take their reference frame with them and are incredibly comfortable with this new three-dimensional environment or can manage things in three dimensions you don't just put something down on a table it'll float away but you're always mindful of where that that thing is in three dimensions there's many other aspects to that but um, we adapt quite amazingly to three dimensions, much more deeply than, than I would have thought possible. Uh, but really the big thing was when I was flying, we, we kind of started breaking the story on a new entity, which has been called many things, vision impairment and cranial pressure, and now more recently spaceflight-associated neuroocular syndrome. 
But uh, it, was, it was during our mission, myself and one of my crewmates, who's also a physician, Bob Thurst, uh, noticed that our near visual acuity was decreasing, deteriorating, and we needed stronger magnification to read our checklists. And we'd heard stories of this before. We knew that we often had to fly uh, glasses of uh, stronger magnification for people. We just didn't know why. In fact, we called them anticipatory glasses, but we didn't know why. Huh. So we got out the old ophthalmoscope, which is this little item that helps you see the back of someone's retina, and said, are we not physicians after all? Let's take a look <laughs> at each other. And lo and behold, it looked like there was a little bit of swelling of, of the optic disc uh, for both of us. And um, we did some other tests on board. And our ground crew fast-tracked some other equipment to us. High-resolution imagery of the retina, actually, uh, was what we really needed. And they, they gave us a little camera to do that within six weeks, which is a record. And we started unwrapping the whole constellation of findings that go with this syndrome that was really not described until that time. So while we're up there, we're finding these findings like flattening of the globe of the eye, which changes your focus, which is a lot of why our near vision was deteriorating. We found swelling of the optic nerve sheath, the, the coating around the optic nerve, we found changes in the retina and little bits of uh, swelling of the optic disc. And these are big things. These yeah. are huge things. And the question is, uh, is, is this Bob and Mike and something that's going on with them? Or is this something that we've missed for all these years and now we have the tools to see it? Well, as it turns out, it's the latter. Uh, and when you think about it, this is such a, a, a large thing that's no doubt a, a manifestation of adapting to zero gravity that we just were seeing for the first time. What else is out there that we're missing? Hmm. I mean, this is a big thing. It affects very crucial parts of a person's anatomy. Uh, and what else are we missing that we just haven't had the tools to find? So it was both a discovery and a, and a realization that there's still much more to learn. So I think when I landed, I probably landed with a even a bigger gap in the space medical knowledge than what I thought after maybe the first half of the, the mission that I was there. Yeah, more questions than answers. Kind of opens up this whole idea of, yeah, right, what else is happening? Right, but, and by the way, that, that has been our, our second largest risk now next to radiation. It's one of our largest focus focuses of, of research since that time. Is the the vision studies? Yeah, or the, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Well, just from your, what you're describing, I mean, there's a, there's a little bit of a positive and a negative, right? The three-dimensional yep. space. You're like, what is happening to the uh, vestibular system? That's your, your, where, whether you know you're oriented, how you do your balance, but it seems like you can navigate better than you originally thought. Upside down, you know where you're going, you know where things are right. better than you originally thought. So that, I guess that's a positive thing, but the vision thing is that's, yes. that's going to be that's going to be a challenge. Yeah, and by the way, with the three-dimensional awareness, uh, you pay for that when you come home <laughs> oh, <laughs> because you have yeah. to adapt the other direction and, <laughs> and what what makes you incredibly adapted in space becomes very maladaptive on day one when you land that's right and that's going to be a consideration for space travel too yeah, because you're going to have to realize that you're going from one environment which may be you know uh, zero gravity microgravity whatever uh in transit to a planet and then once you land now you have to adapt to the gravity of this new planet and right. so does your balance right absolutely <laughs> Um, so you had a couple space flights and had these realizations. Now doing the long duration space flight, what was the comparison to your next flight, the short duration? Well, interestingly, I, I, uh, I was assigned to the short duration flight before I landed from the first long duration flight. So <laughs> oh, really? I knew I was going to have that data point and it was a totally different vehicle. Mm -hmm. So, uh, it, it was more than just the, the short duration in space, the, the launch and landing, the vibe of that mission, STS-133 was totally different. Everything was in English. <laughs> Everything yeah. was at home. I didn't have to travel. 
uh, and I had this amazing crew of people, and we were actually chosen to be the, the last space shuttle crew. And, and we had our pictures taken with Bob Crippen and John Young as the first space shuttle crew, and we were lining up all that, uh, that PR aspect of it all. Lo and behold, Congress funded two more shuttle missions after ah. that, which did a couple things. It made, meant that we weren't the last, but it also took all the pressure and spotlight off of us mm. and made for a very relaxed uh, training flow, and, and the mission was just absolutely fabulous. But I'll tell you, uh, it was great to launch in the shuttle. Uh, it's a very different vehicle. It was quite an honor, actually, to be on one of those last shuttle missions. Hmm. And to uh, have that much room during the two-day chase, it's quite <laughs> a bit larger than the Soyuz. Oh, yeah. Uh, and to be back on station again felt like a homecoming, to be real honest. I had, wow. It was about a year and a half between uh, when I landed from the long one and when, when we launched, not quite a year and a half. But when we opened the hatch, it just felt so familiar. It felt like a homecoming in many ways. I knew my way around. I knew how to get from one handrail to another. I know where you could go fast, where you needed to go slow, where the food was. I mean, it, the, the aroma when we opened the hatch just was so familiar. It, it just felt like home. And so that was really an amazing aspect of it. And it was busy. Um, it was a two-week uh, docked time period almost. And we had a 13-day mission altogether. Uh, it's an interesting perception for some people that the shuttle missions were sprints and the station missions were marathons. Hmm. I, I do like to remind people that a marathon means you're still running. And uh, <laughs> when we had our visiting shuttle missions, which were two of them, when I was on my long flight, uh, we, we were actually working longer days than, than our shuttle counterparts for huh. all sorts of reasons. Uh, but again, you, you're very effective when you've been up there for months. You can get a lot done in a day, and we've, we've all kind of seen that now. Yes. Uh, and so I, I thought about that a lot as a visiting shuttle member subsequently, that I wanted to be a good guest uh, and that uh, we wanted to make sure that we were all working together as a team and not be burdensome on, on the station crew. And I think that, that's a, that was a good realization mm -hmm. at the time. But otherwise, it was just fabulous. There were uh, 12 of us on the station, very international crew, Russians, U.S., uh, an Italian, Paolo Nespoli, and uh, a really fabulous mission. Incredible. So, Mike, with that, you have actually have some experience in HRP. We're, we're working with HRP now to put together sort of the way they've done it is they've categorized hazards of human spaceflight into five different hazards. And I guess they're sort of environmental hazards. They, they uh, did it based on radiation, isolation confinement, distance from Earth, uh, altered gravity fields, and then the last one is a hostile or closed environment. And sure. it's, it's sort of how this affects the human body, which you know since you've actually been in space, but then also worked with HRP. Uh, so I, let's just go through those hazards and just sort of expand on that, starting with radiation, the radiation environment of space. Why is that a hazard to us? Okay. Well, all of these physical hazards kind of account for the physiological changes and the medical changes we see. Each one of them cascades down along several lines which can cause changes and sometimes harmful effects to us. Radiation uh, is an interesting phenomenon because we sometimes think of space as being filled with radiation when really the, the correct way to think about that is Earth being a hardened shelter. To, to radiation. Hmm. We just happen to uh, live and grow up in this bunker, which uh, <laughs> shields us from what the rest of the universe is bathed in all the time. And so if we want to be spacefarers, then radiation is just a fact of life. It's how we're going to get somewhere. Radiation can hurt us on many levels. Uh, we worry about solar flares, which can cause a large number of particles, charged particles, protons, electrons, alpha particles, which can actually cause acute radiation sickness. 
And depending on the dose, that can be very mild, like you never notice it, or can be lethal, everything in between. And then we worry about long-term risk of cancer and increased risk of heart disease uh, and some other things as well, including effects on the brain. <laughs> so there's many ways that, that radiation can hurt us, but it is one thing that we absolutely have to solve. And when you think about being a spacefaring civilization, multi-planet, you have to envision yourself moving from one bunker to another so that hmm. what we have on Earth that shields us from a lot of that electromagnetic radiation, cosmic rays and, and solar particles, uh, we will need to recreate the best we can wherever we're going. And so for places without atmospheres and magnetic fields, we'll depend much more on matter, on, say, burrowing underground to mm. uh, to get some material that shields us from that for most of the time that we live there. Yeah, you're literally using the, I guess, the planet itself to sort of protect Absolutely. you. Because there's, especially, <clears throat> um, you know, you're talking about Earth being a bunker. You got the magnetic field that's really protecting you. Uh, but on Mars... Not so much. On the moon, right. uh, not so much. Yeah, you're not going to have that same protection. Right. So unfortunately, the, the places of interest to us don't shelter us quite as much as, as Mother Earth. And I think it's a good point that uh, finding a, a Goldilocks planet that affords everything that we're used to as, as we grew up and developed here is pretty unlikely. Mm. So we'll be settling for aspects of the, the fundamental elements that we live under that we can live with and then try to make up for those that we don't have. So radiation shielding might be one of those. So um, let, let's start with sort of a low Earth orbit, since that's actually where you did spend some time. Mm -hmm. What's the difference between the radiation environment, environment of low Earth orbit and, say, around the moon? Well, so in low Earth orbit, you're above the atmosphere, which is highly protective of, of radiation. So you lose that. Um, however, you are still underneath the magnetic fields, mm. the geomagnetic fields that protect our planet uh, are held in place. They're basically, it's on, I think of it as a fire shield. It's basically charged particles held in a magnetic field that uh, if you get too close to, you get burned, uh, but the fire keeps the bad things away. So the, the high energy galactic cosmic rays are largely stopped by that geomagnetic field, certainly at the latitudes uh, of the orbits that we fly in. So that's very helpful. Mm. Once you get out of those magnetic fields, then you are vulnerable to the full force of galactic cosmic rays and solar particle events. In fact, from a human standpoint, we, we sometimes consider that extra geomagnetic space because it gives you that clear delineation that we are now outside of our little shielded area. Hmm. So what exactly, you said, you know, from, from small effects to, you know, lethal effects of radiation, what exactly is radiation doing to the human body? So when we think about spaceflight radiation, we're mostly concerned with charged particles, which are electrons and protons and, and some heavier particles that are basically stellar products coming from supernova explosions and energized gas clouds. And uh, I, I will have to caveat that by saying we also have issues with neutrons because those can be formed by interaction of these heavy particles with structure. Mm -hmm. But these are traveling very fast, and they, they possess a lot of energy. And so when they hit something that's of value to us, such as macromolecules like DNA, they can actually induce direct damage. And if you get a large enough dose, they can actually kill cells. Uh, it's some of those smaller doses that, that we're a little bit uh, concerned about because they can damage DNA in such a way, in fact, many different ways, that can potentially cause cancers. Hmm. 
hmm. uh, cause uh, lethality from, from cancers many years after your exposures. And there's a lot of uncertainty about what dose and what charged particle will affect, will cause what effect on, on the human body. And so that's one of our major areas of interest in uh, research. Do we have radiation studies on the International Space Station? Absolutely. So just like a radiation technologist or a nuclear energy worker, we have a very highly monitor envir monitored environment. And uh, every crew member wears a radiation badge, just like any of those people in those industries that I mentioned. We have area detectors which map out the radiation exposure of each area of the space station. And we have, uh, furthering our suite of detectors, charged particle directional detectors, which tell you what the charges are and from what direction they come. And those are the particles that, that come in from the sun and from galactic cosmic rays. And of course, we have our ground observations. And we, we composite all those together, along with satellite data as well. And we get the best picture we can of the radiation environment for low Earth orbit. Hmm. So sticking with the International Space Station, moving on to this, this next hazard, which is isolation and confinement. This is an interesting one because you are isolated and I guess confined on the space station. It's, it's a relatively <laughs> large structure, especially for a space structure and historically the ones that we've actually flown on. Um, but how is, you know, how is, how is that an isolated and confined environment, uh, and then versus what we sh we can be looking towards for future missions. Well, it's an interesting question because when we look at the ISS as a space platform, it is by far the largest space platform we've ever had, <laughs> and uh, and are likely to have for a long, long time. I you know I lived on the uh, space station for uh, nearly 200 days in in 2009, and uh, really loved living there. There's no question about it. But I was lucky enough to come back in about a year and a half. And one of my classmates, uh, Steve Bowen, uh, was, was with me, and he is a submariner by training. He was a, a Navy officer on the Virginia-class attack boats. And he and I flew around the station the first day after we had docked the shuttle Discovery to it. And I just asked him, if this were one of your submarines, how many people would you have in, in a volume this size? And he thought for a minute and said about 130 or so. So our standard crew size on the station is six. <laughs> and uh, boy, and we have zero gravity, which means you can use the volume in three di uh, dimensions. So we really have it pretty good up there. Um, so there's there's many aspects that make the station extremely habitable, largely its size. It's big and there's plenty of space. If you want privacy, you can have it. It's possible to go for hours without seeing another person if you are very concentrating on an experiment or doing some of your work uh, that just keeps you in one place for a long time. The other thing about it, though, is that if you look out the window, you have this magnificent view of, of Mother Earth. And mm -hmm. so there's a bigness and there's a closeness. Hmm. And uh, not only are you overwhelmed by the proximity of the Earth, you also know that you can get there fairly quickly if you need to. If, uh, God forbid, we ever had an emergency on the station, it caught fire and uh, became uninhabitable, we know we can be home within hours and, and uh, safely. So... And that gives you a lot of comfort, and it gives you a lot of closeness to Earth. So it is large and confined in that you can't go outside anytime you want, and you can't always just come home anytime you want, but, but still you have those factors I mentioned that make it very habitable. Now, one other point I like to make is that people think we're a long way away, and they use the term outer space. Even my mom said I was in outer space for six months. <laughs> But, you know, we're not that far away. I mean, we're hmm. 240 nautical miles above the surface, which is about, I don't know, maybe a little more from, than from here to Austin. 
And uh, what separates us is not so much that distance barrier as a speed barrier, a velocity barrier, because to be in orbit, we're traveling 17,500 miles an hour, and we had to accelerate to get there. Yeah. Conversely, to come home, we have to decelerate. We have to slow down from 17,500 to zero. And so it's really not the distance barrier so much as the speed barrier that, that separates us. And that will become very different when we break orbit and uh, head for Mars. Huh. Did you ever feel isolated on the space station or maybe because it's so close that maybe you felt pretty connected? I, I think that the only times I ever felt isolated up there was when I knew there were events going on on the ground that I really wanted to be a part of, hmm. mostly family events. Other than that, not really. Uh, for two reasons, Num- you know, number one, all those habitability factors that I mentioned, but number two, yeah. where you are is just so magical. I mean, it, <laughs> it captivates you. You are mostly feeling how amazing it is to be where you are and feel what you're feeling and see what you're seeing than you are wishing that you were elsewhere. Hmm. So you said you, I mean, there was only six people on this giant spacecraft and you had a lot of room and you had three dimensions of room too. You know, you, right. you, you, you don't have to worry about just walking on the floor. You have all, all surfaces to work. So confinement doesn't really seem like such a, much of an issue from your perspective on the space station. Now, if you're going further out, mm-hmm. is there an optimal level of space, I guess, that you would need as a human to operate and feel comfortable in a spacecraft for long duration missions, especially uh, on a Mars transit that can go somewhere up to nine months in in a single spacecraft without really having the ability to to go outside for a walk in some fresh air. Yeah, that's a a great question. I think it's safe to say just holistically that as soon as you break orbit and head for Mars, all those habitability factors start going downhill. Mm. Uh, for all sorts of reasons. Now, uh, the station is huge. It's much larger than anything we would be throwing to Mars or any other exploration venue anytime soon. And at the uh, human research program level, we actually had a research focus on what we called minimum habitable volume. In other words, what's the minimum we would need to maintain a crew's health and performance uh, in some of these deep space conditions. Now, I will point out that there is no maximum habitable volume that we're trying to determine. <laughs> so basically, the bigger, the better. Uh, that's not our problem. That's that's not the end where we have our issues. Obviously, to throw a mass to Mars is going to be highly constraining. And so the ship that goes to Mars, not only will it be truly isolated, you can't be home in several hours. There is no real-time communication. You don't have that tremendous view of Mother Earth always there just making you feel connected to your home planet. Um, But your volume will be quite small by necessity. And coming up with that minimum habitable volume is is a bit of a daunting task because there's a certain amount of subjectivity to it. Hmm. So um, the the answer is from a habitability standpoint, as big as possible, (laughs) uh, but that will be severely constrained. And so what I think we'll get is a reasonable volume envelope based on the mass we're able to throw and the life support systems we have to accommodate and with that volume, we'll try our best to make it as habitable as possible. Mm-hmm. Now, you have to assume that the astronauts going on that mission to Mars are going to be, 
you can you can assume the best of the best. They're going to be a great crew. Well, we can hope. <laughs> <laughs> we can hope, and and they're gonna and they're gonna be able to get along with each other. And I think that's right. a big component as well is being confined in a space that where mass is a huge constraint. Space is a huge constraint for these long duration missions. Now you're not only talking about confined uh, habitable volume and and livable volume, but livable volume with other people. Right. That's so, absolutely right. Yeah. But I think that uh, you know a couple of things. You will be building expectations of the crew that goes to Mars in a way that will prepare them for this experience. And they'll know what they're getting into, just mm. as we do on Space Station. And NASA has been working very hard to develop training scenarios that build these expeditionary behaviors. One of those is, is coping with relatively small volumes and, and getting along with each other. There's no yeah. question about it that uh, you will have to do some special preparation. Uh, but I'm actually fairly confident that that is something we can do because that's been done in history before, hmm. uh, certainly in Arctic stations and and small spacecraft or small uh, uh, ocean-going craft. Uh, we've proven as a species that we can tolerate fairly austere conditions uh, as long as we're prepared and uh, can get along with it. Now, I think building some degree of privacy is, mm. is prudent, uh, but I think we can do that in a much smaller space than we have with the ISS. Okay. Now, in terms of isolation, uh, as you get further and further away from Earth, so does the um, the time it takes to communicate with Earth. Right. On, on, on Space Station, it's relatively easy, almost instantaneous, re uh, really close to it. So so talking with people is, is easy. As you go further and further away, now you have this delay. Is there a certain level of uh, well, well we'll start with this we'll start with is there a certain level of communication that's needed to maintain the crew's health and and feeling like they're still connected and and not so far away from earth i think that as we move towards exploration of deep space we have to actually look backward not forward for mm. the answers to some of these problems now if you were to look at what i consider one of the greatest voyages of discovery of all time, Captain Cook's circumnavigation aboard Endeavor, where they were lucky to find a merchant ship or a whale ship that might be going to their home port maybe years into their voyage. The crew would draft some letters, hand that to them, and hope that the ship would make it there safely sometime in the next year. Uh, and and that's that letter-writing campaign was kind of how things were done. If you were to tell them, hey, look, we, we got a system where given a few minutes to several hours, you can get a message back to <laughs> Greenwich and, and then uh, they can communicate with you before the day is out, they wouldn't have believed you. Uh, <laughs> so basically what we have is a revolutionary capability compared to the, the means that supported exploration missions for, for centuries. And so uh, can we do it? Of course we have, we, we can do that. Now we have to crew and we have to design accordingly. Hmm. and really move towards more mission autonomy. And we've spoiled ourselves in a way by having such broad bandwidth and real-time communication for the station. But station is a laboratory, and it is designed to produce as much science as possible, and that really depends on, on real-time communication. Whereas heading to Mars and some of the other deep space destinations, we're not in that paradigm. We're really all about exploring and what we need to do in maintaining the ship and maintaining the crew and supporting the mission, most of that responsibility has to really be given to the crew. Hmm. Certainly for any immediate responses that need to happen, that, that all has to be the crew, just like it used to be. 
Yeah. And that blends in nicely to this to this next hazard, which is distance from Earth. Mm-hmm. And I think you know we sort of already talked about that the further you are away, the the more delay there is in communication. So communication is one of the factors that goes hand in hand with distance. The further mm-hmm. out you go, the longer the delay of communication. What are some other factors whenever you're talking about the human body, uh, the human <laughs> really being further and further and further farther uh, right. away uh, from Earth? Well, I think there's a, many aspects to that. Uh, one, I have to kind of think about the medical issues that we, we know our crews are going to be healthy when we launch them, and we're going to do our best to keep them healthy during flight mm. with countermeasures and diet and medical monitoring. But if an acute event happens, uh, if, if somebody, for instance, starts clutching their, their lower abdomen and uh, peeing out blood, then we think there's a kidney stone, you know, that, that could definitely happen. Oh. Uh, so in this case, instead of getting a, a panic call, uh, to to the ground asking immediately to talk to the surgeon, what we may get is a report saying, crew member so-and-so was clutching their abdomen in very bad pain. We pulled out the ultrasound. We found a stone. Uh, we think it's passing. We've given pain meds, and they're resting comfortably. Hmm. That's the kind of paradigm that we're moving to so that the crew members, again, are able to respond to an event and handle it the best they can and give us reports and ask for advice, so to speak, consultation, yeah. rather than real-time guidance. And that, again, is very exploration-oriented. And if we have a whatever settlement or colony or outpost on, on Mars, that's the paradigm. So that begins with the exploration transit. Yeah, there's a lot of factors that go into that. Now you're not... You have to. You have another base of knowledge that you have to have as a baseline for whenever you go out. Because instead of calling immediately to the ground, like you said, and getting the aid, the knowledge of the experts on the ground instantly, now you have to know sort of what to deal with. And then that Absolutely. mentality of not working together, the mentality of doing it yourself and reporting right. the, the progress. Which, truth be told, I think even crew members on station right now, uh, we understand that we're trying hard to produce science and having more consultations with the ground is, is really important. Uh, but more crew autonomy is recommended by almost every crew who returns from station, hmm. partly to enhance efficiency and, and partly for peace of mind. Uh, but it is something that crew members really, I think, naturally want and, and will move into quite nicely. Hmm. I have to think, I, I had a, a very small combustion event on the space station while I was up there, it really almost non-consequential. But that piece of hardware on the the Russian segment uh, started billowing smoke and overheating, and and of course we were able to immediately call the ground, and they knew about it immediately because of smoke detectors and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And in this paradigm, it would have been a call back that maybe they would have found out between eight and twenty-two minutes later that we had this little combustion event. We pulled circuit breakers. This is what we found. Everything is fine now. We replaced the port, the the uh, part that was. Uh, uh, burning, and uh, we are in normal ops recovery. How was your day? Uh, so again, that's kind of the paradigm that we'll we'll get to with exploration. Now, as as we also go further out, you're talking about um, sort of your trajectory to to get there is is not flexible. So if you're if you're going to Mars, that's that's it. If you right. if you already lit your engines and, and you're on your way to Mars, that's it. There's no turning back if there's something. So I'm assuming that that's part of living is in that sort of environment is knowing that once you're on your way to Mars, you're dedicated. Yeah, absolutely. And that again is something you prepare crews for ahead of time. That hmm. by the when you light those engines uh, <laughs> for your trans Mars injection. Uh, there is a state of readiness at all levels, all of your systems uh, and your crew mm-hmm. as well. 
And so that decision has already been made once those engines fire. And that expectation is, is burned in. And, you know, there's an understanding that it'll be a long trip and you can't turn around and you can't sightsee or, or pull off to the side. But that's mixed with the anticipation that you're going to Mars. Yeah. And that's pretty cool. Yeah, that is pretty and cool and magical. It's it's yeah. really just the to know that you're on your way is, is a fantastic step. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, you know, on, based on that, let's go to topic number four, which is altered uh, gravity fields. You're talking about for the International Space Station, microgravity is, mm-hmm. is, is what you're really operating. Now you got sort of a similar environment on the way um, to Mars, but then you have to adjust on this six to nine month journey to Mars. Uh, you have to adjust from that gravity now down to Mars gravity. And we've learned from operating on the International Space Station and doing these long duration missions that there's some there's some significant effects on the human body whenever you're talking about gravity. Right. Well, there certainly are. So it's very interesting because uh, we grew up in 1G, one gravity, and our human body is quite amazing in its capacity to handle different orientations to gravity. We lie down, we stand up, and we maintain our blood pressure to our brain. We, we maintain fluid regulation. We're able to move with different loads. We can run, we can walk, uh, we can swim. We're really quite amazing. <laughs> and uh, when you get into zero gravity, the fact that we adapt to zero gravity is also quite amazing. Um, but it's a little bit easier to go from 1G to 0G because you're going from a loaded state to an unloaded state and your balance gets whacked, but you can't fall because nothing falls up there. <laughs> it actually becomes a lot more exciting when you come from zero gravity back to 1G. Yeah. Um, now, the good news is that of the, the main problems that result from prolonged exposure to microgravity and those being musculoskeletal weakness and problems with your heart pumping blood to your to your head to your brain uh, which is what we call orthostatic tolerance the ability to handle that gravitational challenge on your blood column and balance uh, two out of those three we've actually made tremendous progress on over these years and largely because of some of the work we've done on the international space station so because of our new countermeasures heavy resistive exercise heavy aerobic exercise we come down pretty fit and strong and we have people coming down after six months with negligible bone loss, uh, sometimes a few percent, but but certainly uh, we're in a bracket now that's kind of revolutionized our understanding of maintaining a body in zero gravity. And we have countermeasures for the, the orthostatic intolerance, which is caused by some of those adaptive changes, low uh, circulating blood volume and lower red blood cells and the conditions that uh, in zero gravity decondition your uh, neural circuits that, that let you stand up. We have countermeasures. We can fluid load. We can increase your vascular volume a little bit. We put on garments that squeeze our legs and keep the, the fluid where we want. And there's other things that we can do. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, the, the balance issues that come from problems with our vestibular organs, which are our balance organs, and many other inputs that your brain integrates to determine where you are and what your motion is like, those are things we don't really have countermeasures to. Hmm. And uh, interestingly, now we're, we're worrying quite a bit about those. But I, I am amazed that we have the luxury of worrying really just about that one, whereas we used to worry about three pretty handily. Hmm. So uh, not to trivialize that. that. That is a big issue. Uh, it's very difficult to move, to walk, uh, to do some of the most simple motor functions after a prolonged period in, in zero gravity. Now, the good news is that... Uh, Mars is less gravity. It's a, it's a little bit more than a third of Earth's gravity. And the, the big 
adaptive um, phase where it's very difficult to walk and whatnot is a fairly short one on the order of a few days, uh, certainly several hours to a few days. And so we can wait it out if we're careful and our landing craft on Mars is big enough to allow us to, to stick around. Hmm. And there may be some countermeasures that, that we can still develop. Uh, and the gravity field is, is quite a bit less, which one would expect would, would lessen the implications of it and certainly would lessen the, the chances of injury on, on falling. Uh-huh. Um, but one thing is that you, you cannot expect people to land, put on their spacesuit, and hike five kilometers to the, the lander that you pre-staged there <laughs> within the first few hours. Huh. So there's going to have to be built into the mission, and probably the hardware too, some sort of period of adaptation whenever you land on Mars to sort of, and you're, you're talking about the order of a couple of days, it seems like, to, to sort of get your new land legs, your Mars legs, right. uh, before you actually exit the capsule. Yeah. And, uh and start, like you said, put on your spacesuit and start walking yeah, around. Yeah, that is a certainty. I think a period of post-landing adaptation is yeah. an absolute certainty, which unfortunately drives a, a larger-sized lander. Yeah. So that uh, does change your mission architecture until or unless we develop some type of magical countermeasure to those neurovestibular problems that uh, we are going to need to add. And, and frankly, I don't think we have anything definitive on the horizon for that. You cannot load yourself out of this problem. Uh, like you can with uh, muscle and bone loss. Right, you just work even out. blood yeah, loss. You can load those back, but this we can't. And it's more than just the uh, post-landing period. We've also wondered what are the human capabilities for piloting a spacecraft through the atmosphere of Mars. Hmm. And that is very highly dependent on motor function. And we definitely saw with the shuttle missions, which were short, but we definitely found that even the longer of the shuttle missions, which would have been a little over two weeks in duration, you could correlate with slightly decreased performance on manual landing tasks hmm. of the shuttle. And we know that accumulates over time. So months and months of space flight, that's probably not a good time you want to have manual control of, of a spacecraft entering the atmosphere. Now, once you let's say you land on Mars and you've gone through this adaptation period, now your neurovestibular system is, is back in balance and you're able to walk. Is there still... I'm assuming there might be exercise requirements uh, whenever you're on the surface of Mars. You still have one third G, but um, it's it's and you have that constant load. But I'm assuming you know regular exercise will still be helpful. I wonder just how much. Well, that's a great question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we exercise in zero gravity mostly because we know we're coming home. Hmm. Zero gravity is is great unless you want to come home, and so keeping bones and muscles and uh, cardiovascular system conditioned is really all about coming back to your home planet and it'll be the same on mars that you will absolutely want to exercise because you know that eventually you want to come back to 1g Hmm. until we end up staying there for a little bit longer now the good news is that a third of a g is quite a bit more than zero it's quite a bit more than lunar g Uh, but the important mechanical aspect of that is that it's all we would say linear it's it's basically the center of a planet there's a line between that and your belly button, your center of mass, <laughs> uh, around which you're going to orient your body and carry loads and do your exercises. So basically, it's like being in familiar territory. You just have to dial up the loads more than you would have on, on the ground. Hmm. So that if you had a, a universal gym, you just rack in more weights. More likely, we'll have uh, bags of Martian regolith, and we'll just pack those and lift those. Uh, but it's all along the same vector that we're used to. So it vastly simplifies your 
your uh, performance of countermeasures. Oh, that's right. Because instead of bringing weights with you, right. uh, you use kind of the environment around with you because mass is a, is a huge concern sure. just for just to get there. Right. There's plenty of mass there. And yeah. uh, we often, we think about artificial gravity in, in uh, long transits in deep space and giving us that rotational centrifugal force, which would put back some of those gravitational forces. Mm. But that's problematic in a lot of ways with a spinning structure. But uh, once you get on the surface, you've you've got fractional gravity, but it, it's all linear. It's kind of nature's way, uh, if you will. So that gives us something much easier to work with. Yeah. Now, how about uh, just real quick to you know Mars mission? There's there's a lot of concerns, but we've already been to the moon. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're talking about a moon, you know, let's say we're we have a a habitat on the moon and we're living there for long duration missions to sort of test out going even further out. Now, what would that look like as compared to, um, you know, adjusting from gravities because the, the, the trip is much, much shorter. Right. Well, it's true. We've already been to the moon, uh, but you could also say that's similar to we, we've already been in low Earth orbit during the Gemini period. Yeah. Uh, and so we knew that people could handle the environment and that most likely they could go longer. But, boy, there was a lot we didn't know until we started flying people long duration on Skylab and the Russian programs, uh, Mir Station and ISS. So the same will be true with the lunar gravity. Uh, We will be able to work quickly there. We'll be able to walk and explore. We know that because of Apollo. Hmm. What we don't know is really what are the long-term effects of 1-6-G and what uh, are the countermeasures that we will in turn need. And we'll add all sorts of other hazards with that. It'll be a a vigorous... uh, EVA schedule, which is why we're there. We're, we're there to explore. Yeah. But it'll be there in a, in a gravity field with dust and sharp edges and tools and all sorts of things that we don't have to worry about with spacewalks on the station right mm. now. And so there'll be many different and new levels of hazard that we will have to learn very carefully on as we go. Yeah. And that kind of blends in nicely to this last topic, which is hostile and closed environments. Now yep. you're talking about if you're going out for an EVA, now you're right. You don't have the – It's you have to sure watch out for any micrometeoroid impacts but, or anything. Right. But now you're talking about sharp regolith that right. you have to sort of deal with. Well, you're talking about that. And, and frankly, I think your tools may be your biggest enemy uh-huh. uh, because you're going to be carrying tools to sample uh, or to construct or or to move, to repair, to build – and uh, that will add a whole new dimension to, mm. to what we're doing. Now, some of it will be easier just because you'll be able to keep track of everything. Not everything has to be tethered. And, and uh, if you put a tool down somewhere in a safe place, it will stay there and it will stay safe until you, you pick it up. Uh, however, it will add the, the added risks of potentially falling, uh, cycling your suit against a surface wear, so your boots and whatnot. Uh, and one of the biggest factors that we'll have to deal with is, is dust lunar Mm. dust and lunar dust is an amazing thing because even in our short duration experience on the apollo in the apollo program it was a big problem Mm. and i think it'll be a big problem for us as well medically probably the biggest hazard is how much that's going to interfere with ecosystem valves uh fans anything moving (laughs) anything that requires precision fits which is about everything in spaceflight could potentially be a problem and then airborne lunar dust with the low gravity and, and the electrostatically charged nature of this stuff, it, it floats and flies. And uh, we've done some early toxicity studies, but we don't really know the combination of the factors of lunar dust toxicity itself and 1,6G 
and how that affects pulmonary ventilation and how those particles might distribute in, in, the, in the lung. And so we're now in kind of a new occupational medicine scenario, very similar to silica and, um, and coal dust in mines, where we're going to have to be very careful about monitoring the effects of dust on lung function. Right. And that's kind of goes along with this other part of this topic, which is the closed environment part. Mm-hmm. Humans are very picky. Uh, compared to rovers that we've sent to to Mars and and to the and to the Moon, to really check out that environment, you really don't need life support systems. Now you need to deal with uh, uh, closed environment systems uh, that provide pressure and oxygen, and you need water, you need food, and you need to bring it all with bring it all yep. with you. So that's I mean that's got to be one of the probably the toughest things is that whole human element of bringing of exploring. Yeah, well, the good news is that's generic to almost every space exploration venue we, we think about. Hmm. So we do need to develop that. There's no question. Now, the moon is, is a good practicing ground for Mars because there are certain aspects that make the moon harder mm-hmm. for long-term habitation. There's less gravity, only a sixth instead of a little over a third. There is no atmosphere whatsoever. <laughs> Mars is very thin, but it actually does provide some protection from both uh, charged particles and ultraviolet. Um and uh, boy, there's there's a lot of potential learning that will happen on the moon that if we crack and solve, will make things better. Mm-hmm. We also there may be water ice on the moon, which would be really great. But we know there's water in abundance on Mars. Hmm. Uh, if we learn to use what small amounts we find on on the moon, it will definitely make us better for in situ resource utilization on Mars. That's right. Actually, living off the land, using yep. using your surroundings to best we can. Exactly. Now. One of the, I think one of the more interesting things is the fact that now if you have a human presence on Mars and you have, let's say you have all of your equipment, um, you have, uh, this is sort of a, I guess, part of this topic being the hostile environment, but it's a new environment. Sure, you can map your surroundings, but ultimately if you're taking the steps towards this environment, this previously maybe mapped environment, it is going to be new and you don't really know what you're going to find. Yeah, absolutely right. What I would like to say though is there, there is a combination of, of uh, methods for learning that prep you for exploration. Now, one of those is what we're doing now. As much as we can, research ahead of time. Yeah. But on the other hand, you can't wait until you know everything to go. Otherwise, you'll never go. And <laughs> you have to have a mindset of learn as you go. And that has to be baked into your exploration so that when you're sending people up there, you know there's going to be some uncertainties. What are the effects of 1.6G? I mentioned the, pulmon- the um, dust particles and what those are going to do to us. Yeah. So you have to have a medical monitoring program baked into your exploration so that you can find and collect these, these facts as you need to. Now, all of us need to be naturalists with notebooks when we go explore, and that includes uh, dealing with medical problems as well. Now, you don't want an obtrusive medical monitoring program. This, you know, We're not going to make this a, a huge science program to start with. Sure. But it's something they did quite magnificently, I would say, during the Apollo era, hmm. that learn-as-you-go mindset that basically gave um, results based on medical monitoring we did with all the crew members. And as a result, we knew a lot coming out of Apollo, hmm. to a certain extent because of dedicated science, but to a large extent because of a very logical, well-applied medical monitoring program. And that is something we'll absolutely need for going back to the lunar surface. Yeah. Um, now, in terms of the lunar surface, now go, jumping ahead to Mars, uh, a closed environment. Sure, yeah. uh, you know, 
what's nice about the moon, I guess, is that it's relatively close. Not even right. not as close as uh, International Space Station, but yeah, going back to this whole distance thing, um, Mars is is pretty far, which means not only do your life's uh, your closed environment systems have to work. Uh, they have to work reliably, right? Uh, because you, they have to work for for years, really. Um, but uh, so, what's how do you how do you make sure that a system can be reliable enough to carry a human for that long? Right. Well, that's the the operative phrase is reliable enough, and that means reliable enough to take the risk and and just go do it and and try it. Yeah. And um, the way you make sure is to test everything and field test it as much as possible so that you're not putting a cutting-edge system out there that doesn't have years of space miles on it. That's what you really need. Okay. And uh, that's one thing that the International Space Station is, is helping us with tremendously. It becomes, in a way, um, I like to think of it as a low-Earth orbit wind tunnel where you can take systems and really test them and shake them out and leave them there for crews to use and abuse for months to years at a time and prove that field history. You know, we're pretty good at developing new systems and putting cutting edge technology together into a, a logical package. But there's always stuff you don't know and you will only find that out when you start using it over time. And that is exactly what we need to do before we send a system to Mars. I think that's a perfect place to end it. Is it's just the fact that all of this is, I mean, eventually, a, you know, journeys to explore the moon on long duration missions and to Mars to eventually put humans, human boots on Mars. There are hazards and, and the hazards we sort of list, but ultimately once we go and we learn, I mean, that's that's how you do it. That's yeah. how you do it. Absolutely right. I think there's there's a lot of sentiment that, we need to wait until we have everything done, everything together, everything figured out to keep crews healthy and happy on their way to Mars. But if you, you look at the exploration archives of our civilization, healthy and happy were not big parts of long <laughs> sea voyages or Arctic voyages or anything where information was, was found, new discoveries were made of value to us. And so we don't expect that in our first exploration sorties. And we don't want to wait for that. Healthy and happy is for the paying passengers that come maybe a generation afterwards once we have a settlement and a colony there. But uh, we want to get to a point where it's reliable enough to take the risk and the crew is autonomous enough to handle most of those emergencies and just realize that nothing is certain. But the benefits and the potential discoveries make it worth the while. That's great. Mike, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today and sharing your story and, and really going through these hazards, especially from your perspective as a space traveler yourself. Really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Hey, thanks for sticking around. So today we talked with Dr. Mike Barrett about his story uh, to the traveling to the International Space Station and also his view of the five hazards of human spaceflight. That's radiation and isolation and confinement, distance from Earth, altered gravity, and then hostile and closed environments. So this was sort of a prelude because coming up soon, we're going to actually have episodes that go dive deep into these five hazards, each of them, one episode 
per hazard. We haven't recorded them, so if you have any questions, please send them in. Use the hashtag AskNASA and just uh, make the note that it's for Houston We Have a Podcast. And we'll actually put them into those episodes and answer the questions associated with each of those five hazards. You can also listen to other episodes of Houston We Have a Podcast. We call them episodes just to, for our sake, but really you don't really have to listen to them in any particular order. Otherwise, you can check out our uh, other NASA podcasts, Gravity Assist and NASA in Silicon Valley. You can go to nasa.gov ISS, that's the International Space Station website, to find out what's going on in the International Space Station that helps us to identify these five hazards. Otherwise, you can go to nasa.gov HRP, and that's the Human Research Program site. On social media, International Space Station is on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Again, use the hashtag NASA. Really, send in your questions, and we're going to put them in these episodes. So this podcast was recorded on May 7th and May 23rd, 2018. Thanks to Alex Perryman, Pat Ryan, Lori Abadie, Brandy Dean, Bill Stafford, and Mel Whiting. Thanks again to Dr. Mike Barrett for coming on the show. We'll be back next week.